In Southeast Agnet's Ag and Review for the week ending March the 25th, for livestock producers who have yet to prepare for the veterinary feed directive, now is the time to be doing so. The Food and Drug Administration, of course, has published their revised veterinary feed directive. And Josh White, Executive Director of Producer Education for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, says producers need to take the steps to be ready to comply by this coming December. Now's the time to build a relationship with your veterinarian, make sure he's up to speed or she on the new regulations coming down around antibiotic use, especially with relation to feed additives. That's the real area of focus. And beginning January 2017, there'll be some changes in the labels for feed additive antibiotics, especially the medically important ones. So it's a big topic, but actually I think for southeastern producers, it's going to be limited to just a couple of uses, you know, medicated mineral that some people use and also preconditioning feed. Those will be the two big areas that producers may be affected and need to consult with their veterinarians and formulate a plan. But basically, White says to make sure this is something you discuss with your local veterinarian. I would recommend a veterinarian that does a good bit of bovine practitioner, whether it's in the dairy or beef side, and uh, is a member of either American Association of Bovine Practitioners or Academy of Veterinary Consultants. Some of these continuing education outfits that, that make sure that cattle vets know what's going on across the country. The full implementation date of the Veterinary Feed Directive is December 31st of 2016. Well, the National Beef Tenderness Survey is underway to help the industry better understand how beef production is doing across the country. And the University of Florida is involved in this project as Dwayne Johnson, UF professor of meat science, explains what it's all about. Well, it's a checkoff-funded uh, research project, and this is something that we do about every five years. And I think this is the third or fourth time we've done this to kind of get a snapshot of where we are from a meat palatability, specifically tenderness evaluation of the product coming to market. And so the NCBA has funded this project with our checkoff dollars to go out and purchase steaks at retail and also at food service providers. And then we'll be evaluating those steaks by feeding them to consumer panels and we're looking at product from 14 major cities across the United States. There's five total universities that are working in cooperation on this project to kind of get a gauge of if we're moving in the right direction or if uh, we're things that we need to work on from a meat quality tenderness aspect. I asked Dr. Johnson what kind of a time frame they had for this project. The consumer panels are supposed to be completed by May 1, and then it'll take a little time to get the data analyzed, but I would assume by probably the summer meeting there'd be some results that would be reported to the cattlemen at their summer get-together. And Johnson says the results from this survey are important for the beef industry. Uh, tell us where we're at. Hopefully we're, we're improving, and if we're not, what we need to do to maybe get going in the right direction. In other news, we've been hearing for quite some time how large the supply of peanuts is right now, and according to Tyron Spearman, the latest numbers indicate the demand for peanuts is not keeping up with the supply. USDA's Ag Statistics Service reports the U.S. peanut crop this year is going to end up being about 3,105,000 tons nationwide. According to the uh, su- supply and disappearance figures, it shows that 1,567,000 1, acres of peanuts were planted, and they ended up averaging 3,963 pounds per acre. The big question now is how, what is the end in stocks of peanuts? According to USDA, farmers will go into the new year 
with 1,442,000 tons. That's almost 50% of the need for next year. Uh, the uh, domestic food use for peanuts is not keeping up with that production. They have increased only 2.3% for the first six months. That was the prediction. The real number is 3%. Exports are predicted to increase 3.1%, according to USDA. The present level, January through December of last year, is 2.6%. So the demand is not keeping up with the total number of peanuts being produced when we're starting up into a new year. I'm Tyron Spearman for Southeast Agnet. With this week's Georgia Grown Moment, here's Nathan Wilson. For this week's Georgia Grown Moment, Elizabeth McIntyre talks a bit about Anna's Garda, a blueberry farm in Abbeville. The farm has been in business for about five years. We have been harvesting blueberries. This year will be our third harvest. We have high bush and we have rabbit eye varieties of blueberries. We are very pleased so far with how things are going and we've just planted 20 new acres of highbush blueberries. Elizabeth discusses reasons why they became a member of Georgia Grown. I know for myself that I'm attracted to a Georgia Grown label because I want to support our state and our local farmers. I think other people are aware of the good products that we produce in our state. And I think over the years it has and will continue to become a show of excellence, really, of a product. So we're we're looking forward to just continuing to grow Anna's Garden. For more information, visit www.georgiagrown.com. This is Nathan Wilson reminding you that if it's not local, it's not Georgia Grown. Well, while the debate continues over how to label genetically modified foods, there's also a question of what exactly is a GMO food. Kathy Isom has that story. While the debate continues over how to label genetically modified foods, there's also a question of what exactly is a GMO food. During a House Agriculture Committee hearing, lawmakers poring over the GMO food labeling issue took it a step farther by zeroing in on just what counts as genetically modified in the first place, asking the head of the Ag Department's marketing service, Eleanor Stamar, if USDA even has the authority to define the term GMO for labeling purposes. Without statutory authority provided by Congress, we can't define GMO or non-GMO through a standard. But if Congress provides us with that authority, as they did, for example, with the National Organic Program to define what organic means, then we would engage in um, the rulemaking process to define that term, and that would go through public comment. Which could be a long, complex process in the case of USDA's organic definitions and standards. It took a decade from the time USDA got congressional authority and direction to do it to the time the final rules were out. I'm Kathy Isom, Southeast Agnet. And to wrap up this week's podcast, Everett Griner talks about a new cash crop that's surpassing corn and soybeans. Well, it looks like America has a new cash crop leader. It taught corn, cotton, soybeans, and all the other crops grown in America. Marijuana. Uh, now, if my notes are correct, the 2014 figure hit $5.4 billion. That's not all. Forecasters say by the year 2020, the little crop will bring in $20 billion. What is it, 23 states that now make it legal to possess medical marijuana? Looks like a matter of time until all 50 states make it legal. What kind of income figure will that produce? It doesn't matter. American farmers who produce our essential crops will still stick to corn, cotton, and soybeans. But there's one question yet to be answered. What will the income figure be as more states approve recreational marijuana? Looks like that's the direction we're headed. Uh, that might encourage uh, some of our legitimate crop farmers to change their minds. And that's Ag Review for today. Everett Griner, Southeast Agnes. 
Those reports and more can be found on our website, southeastagnet.com. Randall Wiseman, Southeast Agnet.